We are live. We welcome all you guys that are joining us wherever you're at in the United States or around the globe and all of you that will get this podcast. We welcome you with us tonight. <clears throat> we uh, want to get back in James chapter 4. We're going to pick up in verse 11. It's where we left off and probably finish this book tonight. We'll see if we can finish it anyway. Uh, this is the book that I, I've shared with you many times when I lead somebody to Christ or have a new convert. This is the first place I take them. Get them grounded here in what I like to call practical Christianity. So much in this book that teaches us the ways of God and how to, how to uh, approach God and how to be um, uh, effective in our Christianity as we start it. So let's pray and then we'll get started here. Lord, we thank you for this time we have together. We don't want to take anything for granted as we're getting ready to read in this, these passages that none of us have the promise of tomorrow. And so we want to be effective today. And we don't want to put off something today till tomorrow because we don't own tomorrow. You do. And help us to remember that. Lord, and help us to remember that our lives belong to you. And you are the one who orders our steps and numbers our days. May we live a life with that in mind so that we may be effective each day that you give us. We give you praise most of all for taking our place on that cross we should have been the ones hanging on that cross. And we give you praise for taking our place. We ask you to lead and direct us tonight. Let us have the ears to hear. Give me the tongue of the learned. May the Holy Spirit open our eyes. In Christ's name, amen. So let's look at uh, chapter 4 in James, verse 11. I brought my New Testament in Greek out because I want to read a portion of this to you from that text, from the Greek text. And then... Uh, we're going to go a couple of places, other places in the Scripture. Verse 11 says, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver, and that's capitalized, so he's talking about the Lord, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? So we're not allowed to pass judgment or sentence on people. We need to look at our own lives and understand where we stand with the Lord. And uh, you and I are not going to change anybody with our mouths. It takes the Holy Spirit to change people. Uh, what we need to judge is situations, understand what's right and what's wrong, and live our lives accordingly. But the ultimate judge is the Lord, and we have to leave that in His hands. But he makes a statement here. He talks a lot about God as the lawgiver here, he says, who is able to save and to destroy, speaking of the Lord. And then he challenges our ability to judge. And of course, we don't have that ability because we don't see the heart like God does. But look at, uh, let's put that on the screen, Matthew 10 and 28. Let's be reminded what Jesus said here on Matthew 10 and 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So that's the judge, the one who has all power, who knows everything. Here's something I want you to be reminded of. God can't do any wrong. He cannot lie. He can't do any wrong. He's perfect. And that's good news for everybody, not just those of us who follow Him. But it's good news for everybody because when everybody, and everybody will, when everyone stands before the Lord someday, they will be judged correctly. God's not missing anything. He knows everything. He sees everything. He hears everything. That can be good or bad, right? Depending on which side of the fence you're on. And so we can rest and have great confidence that anyone, including ourselves, when we stand before the Lord, we will be judged correctly. Perfect. No stone will be left unturned. God will not mislabel or mishandle anyone. He knows everything about everything. God is the only one who knows how many seeds are in the watermelon before it's cracked open, by the way. So that, that's comforting to know. You know, we all, I've, I've done a lot of funerals. I've done people in my circle. I just say it that way. People that, 
And I don't have, I do not have the confidence that everybody I've put in the ground has went to heaven. I don't. And that's not a good feeling. Uh, you know, I, I think it was A.W. Tozer said, men are going to have to repent for how they've preached funerals. Because you go to the funeral, everybody goes to heaven. Have you noticed that? Now, we don't have the authority to put anybody in hell. That's not our job. We're not the judge. But a lot of times, people in the crowd, they know that person wouldn't live in the way they've been talked about. You know, and so I know it's a hard situation. And I don't have the confidence at all that everybody I've preached a funeral for has went to heaven. But I do know this. I knew though they'll stand before a perfect God who cannot do any wrong. And that, so that's going to bring us back to the rest of what we're going to get into here. If you and I have concerns about people that are not ready, then why don't we do something about it? Why don't we reach out to them? And he's going to challenge us on that in, the, in some of these passages that we're in tonight. And then he says, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor and it appears for a little time and then vanishes away. I cannot believe. It's hard for me to mentally grasp that I'm closer to that six than I am the five. Everybody know what I'm talking about? It's just like, it's like the, the coyote when he was on uh, the road runner, you know, when they leave those zingers back behind. That's how fast life's going. And before I was beginning to be an old timer, now I'm headed into that direction. I asked somebody several years ago, I said, when you get older, does it slow down? You know, because things are kind of, you know, you're kind of tapering off a little bit. Your children are grown, whatever. And they said, no, it just gets faster. And I think I'm and I see some of you that are at least two years older than me shaking your head back there. It gets faster. Life's really a vapor. Who, I mean, I can't believe I've been out of high school for almost 40 years. I mean, that's just hard to fathom, right? You, you think about that and think how, just how fast time goes. He says, your life is but a vapor. And so he's cautioning us here to remember that. But he's also cautioning us about being presumptuous. For us to not be presumptuous. He says, for what is your life? It is even a vapor. It appears for a little while and then it vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. I used to hear that a lot when I was growing up. I don't hear it as much anymore from our generation and the ones coming behind us. But when I was growing up, my parents' generation, the one, they would usually say that with everything they'd say. If the Lord wills, we'll go on vacation this summer. If the Lord wills, I'll retire this year. If the Lord wills, you know, I heard that a lot growing up. I don't hardly hear that anymore. I think because we are such a presumptuous culture and we, we have extended life, whoopee. <laughs> we went from what, 74 to 76 and Methuselah was 969. We got a long way to go. Uh, so what we're looking forward to is eternal life. But he, he just reminded us here that that life is really a vapor. And I think if you've lived any time at all, you're seeing that, right? Life just keeps moving on and moving on and moving on. And he's cautioning us here about being presumptuous. He says, we should say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Now, I mean, I, as your pastor, I got a lesson in that, right? Last year. Well year before last now, less than a year and a half ago, when I collapsed in Texas and wound up in the hospital and had heart surgery. And I can't tell you just in that span of time of about 14 months or 16 months, how many men my age did not get up? God wasn't ready for me. I can just hear him saying, to the Holy Spirit, don't bring him up here. We're not finished working on him. <laughs> Leave him down there. But I can tell you, a lot of people my age, <clears throat> I buried a 46-year-old man two weeks ago. Didn't get up. And a lot of people my age, so life can stop in a moment. It can be over in a moment. We don't have the promise of tomorrow. None of us do. 
Doesn't matter if you're five years old, 55 years old, or 95 years old. None of us have the promise of tomorrow. Now, we don't have to live in fear or dread because we know when we die, we just transfer from this life to the kingdom of God or into heaven. But we should uh, make sure that we live our life with the understanding that none of us own tomorrow and that our life does move swiftly and we don't want to leave things undone. And I'm not really talking about the things that we want to do. I'm talking about the things the Lord has asked of us. Let's go over to Psalm 19. Let's see what he what he kind of instruction David gives us. And David was a man who faced a lot of stuff like most of us. He was a realist and he he understood life and he got to understand it as he went through all of his battles. And he gives us some good understanding. If you watch with David, David, when he wrote his early Psalms, he talked a lot about his trouble and a little bit about God. As he got older, he talked a little bit about his trouble and a whole lot about his God. It shifted because he understood that God was working in his life. In verse 1 of chapter 19 of Psalm, he says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. God knows and hears everything. In fact, He said we'll have to stand before Him and give an account of every idle word we speak. So that's, I know I didn't want to hear that either. I wish I hadn't said it. <laughs> that's pretty strong language, isn't it? That we'll have to give an account of every idle word we speak. And he says, there's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth. And their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like the strong man to run a race. Its rising is from end of heaven and its circuit to the other end. There is nothing hidden from its heat. So God is so much bigger than our frame of reference, right? And his, his foolishness is greater than our greatest wisdom. He has to... He is such an awesome, powerful God. The law of the Lord is perfect. And it does what? Converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. Think about how the devil feels. He's captivated this man or this woman for 40... I'll just come up with the number. For 46 years. He's captivated their life. He owns them. They, They live for themselves. That's how we all do. Before we're saved or born again. They live for themselves. They do their will. Their will is predominant. They do whatever they want to do. And just in a moment, God, the Holy Spirit convicts them, draws them into a place of repentance. And everything the devil's done for 46 years is null and void. The devil's got to leave disappointed a lot when the Lord saves somebody. Because he's been working on this person, keeping them blind. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God converge on that person, draw them in, they repent and turn to Christ, and everything the devil's done, wiped away. That's the beauty of salvation. That's who God is. That's what He can do. He says, The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. Think about that. If we fear God correctly, if we understand His position... And that's what that word fear is trying to convey. We understand who we are versus who He is. And He says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than any gold. Is that us? Is it more important to you to know the wisdom of God than it is to have stuff or money? That's how it should be. Our number one objective should be to know Him and know His way. That should be the most important thing in our lives. And He says, The judges of the Lord are true, righteous. They're more to be desired than any goat, yea, than much fine goat, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is worn, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand His errors? Cleanse me from, listen to what He says here, Cleanse me from secret thoughts. 
Or it just would be secret things. Word false is italicized there. But in the Hebrew you'd understand. Just cleanse me from the things that are hidden. That nobody else sees. Cleanse me from those things. And then he says. Keep back your servant also from presumptuousness. Or presumptuous sins. Things that we take for granted. And see that's the whole idea of. What we're, that section there in James is about being presumptuous, right? He says, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, right? Things that are bowing down on me. Things that maybe other people don't know about. Things that, and that's what David's praying about here. He's saying, Lord, deliver me from the things that men may not see, but I know. And that's the beauty of what it means when you and I get clean. Because nobody knows the depth of our depravity like we do, right? That deepest part center of who we are. Nobody knows that better than you and God, right? That's a you and God thing. That gets down into the deepest, darkest depravity of who we really are. And that's what Dave was talking about. Now, David is a beautiful example of this because he did some things that were horrendous, right? I mean, he takes another guy's wife, has the guy sent to the front line so he'll be killed. He numbered the people. He pulled some stunts. He did some sinning. And in fact, David may as well killed Bathsheba's husband, right? Because he, uh, he had him put out there to be killed. So he might as well have done it. And when the prophet comes and challenges him on it, you know, he's all stirred up that somebody, and he uses an analogy there, right? When you think about David, when, when Bathsheba's husband come home, David actually was trying to manipulate. This is the depravity that's inside of people, right? He tries to manipulate that for him to go and be with his wife so that he can blame the pregnancy on her husband and he can kind of walk away from her. But this guy's so loyal to David that he won't even be with his wife because his, his buddies are out there fighting a war. So in honor of them and to the king, he refuses to have pleasure with his own wife because that's how much respect he's got for the king. And that's the guy. Have you ever thought about the whole story? It's bad. It's all bad. It's horrible. Because Bathsheba's husband is honoring the king and the Lord and his guys who are out there putting their lives on the line and so he would not even go into his own wife, even though David was trying to promote that. And so David resorted to taking things into his own hands and having him put to the front of the line so he'd be killed. Sounds like a guy that ought to be just wallered, don't it? Kicked out of everything, right? But that depravity is in all of us. And the only thing that can change that is the Holy Spirit, the Lord. And so David, we're all born into sin. And David, yet David is the only guy in the Bible, the Bible says he's a man after God's own heart. Isn't that great news for all of us? Because you may not be guilty of the same things David's guilty of, but we're all born into sin. The Bible says there's none good, no, not one. All our righteousness is like filthy rags, Paul says. And so David is a wonderful example of all of us. What happened there is David, when he saw what he was capable of, it caused him to cling that much tighter to God. Some people, when they see what they're capable of, they turn and run. But David gives us the example of Peter's like that in the New Testament, different sins. In fact, I would argue that what Peter done was worse than what David did. From our perspective, how do you... Watch him walk on the water, feed thousands of people, raise the dead, save your neck, and then act like you don't even know him. That's horrendous. How does Peter, how, where does he get off the bus at doing that? I mean, you just watched Jesus raise the dead multiple times. You watched him feed thousands. You watched you, the guy that got out on the water with him. And when they ask you if you know him, you lie curse and act like you don't know the Savior of the world. I mean, that's about as bad as it gets in my book. And Jesus forgave him. He forgave David. 
All that's wonderful news for us. If you read the lineage of Jesus in Matthew and read all of the, the people in there that were miserable, had miserable moments in their life, it just shows you the grace of God, right? How he steps into moments and brings beautiful things. But David would never turn his back on God. Even in his worst moments, in his worst hours. Remember when he got in trouble with God another time, he said, the Lord gave him three choices. He said, you can, your enemies can come in on you. Uh, he gave him another choice. And then the third one was, or the Lord will discipline you. He said, let the Lord discipline me because I know he'll be compassionate. He had that kind of relationship. He wasn't perfect. But he had that kind of relationship. And he's the guy that's telling us this. He's saying, Lord, uh, cleanse me from my secret faults. Keep me back, the servant, from, your, from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I will be blameless and I will be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. In other words, he's saying, get right down into the fabric of who I am. I think it was um, uh, John Wooden who said, Reputation is what people think you are. Character is who you really are. John Wooden, the basketball coach that won more championships at UCLA than any school, any coach ever. And he said, Reputation is what people think you are. Character is what you really are. It's Stephen Covey, he said that, we now, we live in a culture now that it's what we can get people to perceive us as, not what we really are. And, and see, the Bible is just the opposite of that, right? The Bible says, let's get to the heart of the matter. Let's go deep inside. Let's find out who this person, and God wants to change us from the inside out. That's the work of the Spirit, that He would begin to change us from the inside out. So He says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. In other words, don't just let it be an outward show for the people I go to church with or the people I work with or the community I'm in that everybody thinks I'm good. Let me really be good inside. Can we just pray for a moment before we go on? I feel like the Holy Spirit just wants us to pray. God, I pray that for all of us. Not just um, people here in the building, but people who hear us and our families the people we love, that we would be genuine inside. That the darkness that's in us, you would begin to, you would root that out of us and that we wouldn't hang on to any areas that we know you're not pleased with. That we would come into agreement with this psalm, the way David prayed, who had lots of experience with failure. And help us all to see the value of what he's saying here. That we want you to come and invade our lives and make us the men and women you've called us to be. Not what we desire, but what you desire in Jesus' name. Now, let's go back to James and see how far we can get through there. Uh, this is a good psalm for us to remember. He says uh, in verse 17 of the last, last verse of the fourth, fourth chapter, he says, Therefore to him who knows to do good... And does not do it to him, it is sin. So there we go. That's us, right? If you've studied God's word, if you've been a part of the house, uh, the family of God, what have you learned? What have you learned about being a Christian? What have you learned about being a follower? Well, a lot of things are common to us. We're supposed to share our faith. And, and you know what? This generation will stand in judgment maybe as much or more and the ones coming after them if depending on how long time lasts we're running out of time because these generations have multiple ways to share their faith look at all the social media this generation has so many ways to share their faith that other generations didn't have you either had to walk two miles around to holler to get to the next family or see them once a month at church or write them a letter that might take three weeks to get there you didn't have a telephone, didn't have nothing. We, we, we love all this technology. Listen to me now. We love it all for ourselves. What about for God? Did he, make, did he allow all this so we could be more effective witnesses? What if Paul would have had a fax machine? He'd been, woo, right? Now. What if he could make copies at a copier instead of with a feather 
and a dab of ink out of a bottle or whatever. Think about how responsible we're going to be. God says, I gave you all multiple avenues to share your faith. But you thought, I, and that's something we've got to change. At least let it be us, the true followers of Christ. You and I wasn't put here to do our thing. We were put here to put Him first. If you're in a job or in a situation, you're there to glorify God first. Retirement and everything else is secondary. The first thing, whatever circle, because everybody in this building has a different circle of influence. You have people you can reach that I can't reach. I have people I can reach you can't. God designed us that way. And he put us in places. He put Daniel in politics. He put people all over in different places so that we would bring him glory. And that people could taste and see that the Lord is good. You know that's how they do that. We read that psalm. And then we come over to Galatians chapter where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The design behind that is you and I bear the fruit so that people can taste and see that the Lord is good through the fruit that we bear. That's how they're... And do you realize that Billy Graham, he gave this statistic years ago. Less than 10%. And this is a big st a statement... And a big statistic come from him because he was the preacher for the world for a season. And he said less than 10% of people come to Christ because of a revival meeting or a crusade meeting. And that's what he did. Less than 10%. Over 90-some percent of people come to Christ because they have a relationship with somebody at an office, at a school, wherever. And they've watched them and that's what's drawn them to Christ. Over 90 some percent of people come to Christ because they have a relationship with a Christian that's had an impact on their life. So God put us wherever He put you, whatever circle He's put you in, He put you there to glorify Him first. That's why He put you there. And uh, so He says, if we know to do good and we don't do it, that becomes sin to us. It's, we don't want to keep putting things off. And then in chapter 5, he says, come now, you rich, you, uh, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days, thinking that's going to save them, right? Indeed, the wages of the laborers who moved your fields, which... You kept back by fraud cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. And the Lord of Sabaoth is the final authority, is one way to say that. He's the armies. The armies of heaven belong to him. He's supreme, and he's in charge. That's what Sabaoth means. So he's the final authority. And so a couple of times, you know, and there's other people out there. These are just the ones I've been exposed to. But a couple of times in my life, I've run into employers who were just as concerned about their employees doing good as they were doing good. Now, that's rare. I understand that. But that, that I've run into that a couple of them. Both of them were coal miners, guys who owned coal. One guy came into our community in the 70s. He was paying wages in the 70s, 12 and $14 an hour. That's a lot of money in the 70s. He was giving all those guys coal bonuses every month. And he sat down and had business meetings with them and said, if you guys will put these coal bonuses away when this mines can no longer produce coal, he said, every one of you won't have to worry about a thing. He was very concerned. He had community picnics for the whole community. And he would have a helicopter and just drop $100 bills out of it for everybody. He was rich. But he shared his wealth. He cared about his employees. And, oh, and th those are few and far between. Most of them. That's why the, the, the scripture is being so hard. Because most people, it's about them. It's about them. And we know how our culture runs. We know how culture runs around our world. That people are just in it for themselves. But there's a few of them that are not that way. But he's given them some challenges here. He says, you've held back wages. You've kept back fraud. You cry out. The cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord, of the one who's in charge. You might want to say it that way. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the just 
And He does not resist you. And you know, there are certain segments in this world where there are people who have bad ideas, who have lots of money, are trying to gain control of certain things. And really all they're doing is just setting it up for the Antichrist to take over. They think they're going to be in charge, but the devil's the one that's working all that to his own. And the Lord's allowing it. He says, uh, therefore, and he's talking to us, he's giving us a word because we live in a world that's turned its heart away from God and its eyes. He says, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until he receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And I think that's a word for all of us tonight. We know the Lord's coming soon. We understand that. We, we're living in the terminal time when you see what happened in 1948, 1967. Those are what the New Testament prophecy hinges on, kicking us into the last days, especially 1967. Jesus said, when you see that generation... When Jerusalem leaves the control of the Gentiles, goes back under the control of the Jews. When you see that happen, know that this generation will not pass till everything's finished. That's pretty plain. Here we see it. We need to hear a word like that. We need to be patient because it's easy to get frustrated. Because we live in a culture that could care less about God now. Christians are way in the minority, not just in other countries, here in America. True believing Christians are in the minority in this country. The statistics are staggering now about who is the faith, the ones that are really faithful in America as Christians. So he says, be patient. He stresses that. And that word patient is not hupomene, it's uh, macrothumeo. And that word means to bear long, to be able to be strong. The Bible says in the Proverbs, if we faint under the day of adversity, our strength is small. So the adversity comes, and when adversity comes, guess what we find out about ourselves? We find out how strong or weak we are. Because that's what adversity does. It reveals to us where we stand. And we need to know that. Because we might need to get a little stronger, right? We might need to spend a little more time in the Word or a little more time in prayer. Because when adversity comes, it will reveal how strong or how weak we are. I think the proverb says it like this way. That if, if we faint in the day of adversity, our strength is small. We found out something about ourselves, right? Maybe we weren't attending to our spiritual life the way we should. And then he says, uh, do not grumble, uh, be patient, establish heart to come, the Lord is near. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. So that's the second time he told us to keep our mouth shut. All right. Did I put that plain? Uh, he says, do not speak evil of one another in verse 11 of the last chapter. And then here he says, do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. There again, he's calling God the judge, as he did in the last chapter. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Now that word is the word you all hear me use a lot. It's the Greek word hupomene. It means to be consistent. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. That word you have heard of the perseverance of Job. That's hupomene. It means to be consistent. So he says, Job stayed consistent. No matter what came his way, he stayed consistent with God. That needs to be our testimony. No matter what comes our way, that we stay consistent with God. And he's seen in the end, we've seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So he gives us Job as an example of somebody who remains under it, stays consistent, stays faithful, no matter what all he faced. And listen, we could all pile up our trouble right here in the middle of this building tonight, and it probably wouldn't add up to what Job went through in less than 24 hours. But he stayed the course. He stayed faithful. But then he says, notice how God is. Said He, he allowed Job to go through a season like this, but look what God did. He said, see how he treated him at the end. 
the Lord is very compassionate, merciful. So at the end, we know what happened with Job. We just studied Job not too long ago that he got double of everything he had. He got 10 more children because he had 10 waiting on him on the other side. So he didn't need double children, right? He probably didn't want double children. No, he didn't raise 10. So he's got these 10 waiting. So God doubled up everything and gave him 10 more children because his 10 more other were waiting. What I want to get across to us, and I spoke about this a little bit Sunday, is this. When you read the book of Isaiah and you think, man, I wish God would talk to me like that or the way he does Isaiah. And you read that book in a few days, right? 66 chapters, right? That took place over a span of years. So what I'm trying to get across to you is you read a book like Isaiah and, and act like, and we think that God was talking every second. That wasn't how it goes. We've all got some hanging in there to do is what I'm getting at. There's going to be spans of time where we have to persevere. You read the book of Acts and you think, I want those miracles. So do I. And we've seen some of them. But that's a span of years. These people wouldn't get in a miracle every single day. So there's got to be some level of perseverance in us that hangs in there when times get a little tougher or where we're, when we're not seeing what we would like to see. That, that's, that Christians, can I say this, Lord? Will you let me say it? Uh, Christians, we need to be tougher. We ought to be the toughest people on the earth. Why? Because we can't lose. If you realize you're going to heaven, you can't lose. To live is Christ, to die is gain. We ought to be the most, I'm going to make up a new word here. We ought to be the most hanging in there people there are. They ought, they ought not be able to turn us away no matter what. Because we know in whom we believe. We know what we got waiting for us on the other side. And so the, we, we ought to persevere. We ought to be the people that, that they cannot turn back. And he says, um, the Lord, you see all this. And then he says in verse 12, But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or earth, or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. And this just goes back to the character, right? Not the reputation. Just whatever you're willing to commit to or you feel like the Lord, do it. And you don't have to back it up with anything but obedience. We ought to be the most obedient people in the land to God. And that should speak for itself. Is anyone among you suffering? That's the question he asks. Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So there's a process there. If you fall into one of those categories, you've been given instruction about it, right? If you're suffering, start praying. Don't get on social media and complain. Why do we spend so much time Talking to everybody else instead of talking to God. That's got to change. He's the one that can do something about it. What if we spent more time talking to God about our stuff instead of everybody else? And ask and say, Lord, I've got problems here. And taking them to the Lord. I think there's another place that says, let your request be known unto the Lord. Right? Nothing wrong with bringing people in to help you pray. But if that's all we're doing is, is getting other people in and not spending time seeking the Lord, talking to God about it, that's our greatest resource. He's our greatest asset. He can blow his nose and turn the world upside down with the blast of his nostrils, the psalmist said. So we have access to God. That's why that veil was rent when Jesus died. We have access to God. We can go to the highest authority in the universe. But yet sometimes it seems more practical to us to talk to somebody. Nothing wrong with that in its place. But do not skip or bypass God. You're his son and his daughter. How would you feel? Here's a good way to put it. If your son or daughter needed something... But they didn't come and ask you for it. They got one of their friends always to come and ask you for it. How would that make you feel? If you never got any interaction from your own son or daughter. But they were always sending somebody else in to ask 
you for something for them. We, you got direct access. You're a son. You're a daughter. Take advantage of it. Go talk to God. Let Him know how you feel. Use that prayer journey. And he says, uh, but above all, brethren, don't swear. Let everything be good. Do, if you're in trouble, if you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, sing. If you're sick, call on the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. Listen, I'm going to make this as plain as I can because this is clear instruction. If somebody has to drag you up to the elders to get them to pray for you, that ain't no count. You call on them. You call on them. Not your neighbor. Not your neighbor. Come on. Come on. Let me get you up front. You. You do it. Me. Me do it. Is that how the little children say if you've got sickness, you ought to be the one getting up and calling. How much do you want it? Is somebody having to beg you to get out of your seat to talk to God? That's got to change. Right? If you're sick, you, he said, let them. Not everybody around them. Let them. That's an act of faith. You see what's happening there? I shouldn't have to coax you into going and talking to God. Is anybody following me? I'm not getting any amens. I'm going to take up offering if you don't start amening. See, the instruction is for us personally. Why? Why? Think about it. Think about it. Think about your son or daughter standing outside, not coming in to see you, but sending somebody in as a proxy. Think about it. How would that feel? You're the father. You're the mother. But the son or daughter don't want to be around you. They want to send a proxy in. That'd be a bad feeling as a parent, wouldn't it? And some of you probably experienced that. You know that's a bad feeling. You have a Savior that opened the veil up. This is what brought us to the realization of Martin Luther and all that stuff. That veil was rent, not so the preachers and the priests could keep going in. They slipped in other way. That veil was rent so everybody could go in. Every one of us. God cares just as much about the least among us, whatever that means, and the greatest among us, whatever that means. He cares about everybody the same. So you shouldn't be have, to, have to be coaxed to go be with a good father. He's waiting on you. He's waiting on me. If you're sick, I wouldn't let a team of mules keep me from talking to my dad. Whatever your situation is, we have instruction. And then he says, And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And it, look what a, this is a, the blue light special. You get two for one. Right? Look at this next line. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Bam! Just an add-on. Amen. We ought to be thankful for that. It just gives you a little extra incentive. He says, confess your trespasses to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Find you somebody you can be real with. Find you somebody. Somebody, that, that, somebody that's faithful. Somebody that won't get on the telephone and talk about it. <laughs> it is a telephone when we gossip, right? Somebody that won't get on social media and give your information out as a prayer request. But somebody that will be faithful. The Bible says <clears throat> a faithful one will cover the wounds and cover the sin. And he's going to talk about that in just a minute, what we can do. But he finds you somebody you can be real with. And somebody that won't betray you. Somebody that will love you and pray for you. And not use you as a gossip. Now I know that's hard to find. I wrote an article about this many years ago. And it got published all over the nation. About how, what it means to confess. And the responsibility not only of the one who's confessing. But the responsibility of the one who's hearing the confession. And that's what God's called us to be. He's called us to be faithful hearers. And to cover. Love covers sin. That's what it says. Aren't you glad? That's what Jesus did with us, right? He covers our sin. And he says, uh, 
confess your trespasses to one another, pray for one another, that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. This word uh, effective means energized. It's where we, energio is the Greek word, it's where we get our word energy. Fervent suggests that there's a supplication consistent with an inward conformity to God's will. In other words, this is how this person's praying. They're energized. They're, they're conformed internally to the will of God, not their own will. And the, the word avail means produce results. Now, you hear what he's saying here? He's saying the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The energized conf- uh, will, the man who's energized to the will of God will have results when he prays. Remember we talked about praying our will instead of God's will. How we get in a spot where we can pray what we want, not what God wants. But this guy, and then he gives Elijah as an example. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Think about that. He's just like us. That's what the Bible's saying here. We don't look at it that way. We look at him as a giant, spiritual giant. But he's just like us. He had the same temptations, the same limitations, the same kind of flesh we live in. And he says, Elijah was a man like, uh, with nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. It did not rain in the land for three years and six months. He prayed again, and the heaven gave rain. The earth produced its fruit. He was praying, though, on the will of God. If you go back and read where God spoke to Israel, he said, if you ever turn to idolatry, I'm going to withhold the rain. So Elijah stepped into that word of God and prayed it, and it came to pass. See, that's why it's important for you and I to know God's Word, to hear His Word to us personally, so that when we pray, we don't pray Matthew's will, we pray God's will. That's what changes people. And then he says, brethren, if anyone, I like this last line here, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he turns a sinner, he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Can you go after that person? Who is going to be? Is it going to be you? Is it going to be me? Who's going to go after that person? I want to read that to you from the Greek text. Brothers of me, if anyone among you wonders from the truth, and someone turns him back. Let him know that the one having turned back a sinner from the wandering of the way of him will save the soul of him from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's a job for all of us. You know somebody's lost their way. Is it okay? Is it okay not to witness? Is it okay not to share the gospel? Is it just okay? Do you have more important things than to lead some sinners into the path? Is there something more important in my life or yours than doing that? The Lord came to seek and save that which was lost. He said it's not his will that any would perish. That means the worst person you may know. That means Charles Manson, Adolf Hitler. It wasn't his will for any of them to perish. What are you going to do about it? Are you willing to step into that moment? When you read the newsletter this month, when you get it, you should get it in the next couple of days. Think about it. Think about the person. Because it's along these same lines. Think about what my responsibility. What am I going to tell God when I get to heaven? What, what kind of things will we be able to talk about? Will I just be able to say, hey, I pastored churches. I pastored the sheep. Will I be able to point to some people that I actually impacted their life? Let them out of led them to Christ? 
I'm going to tell him what a good dad I was. My children have to vouch for that. That'd be their call, not mine. What am I going to tell him? Am I going to be able to talk to him about the most important thing that, that's the dearest thing to his heart? Nothing has any value to God in this world except people. You know how we know that? Because he's going to burn everything else to the ground. So if the only thing that has value to God is people, that's what I'm going to be interested in. That's what I need to be concerned about talking with him about. Did, was I a good example to whoever in my circle? Did I show them Christ? Did I live it in front of them? Did I take that moment to share with that person who was lost? Did I take that moment to go after that guy who had lost his way and try to get him to turn back? That's what's important to God. Will I be able to have any discussions with God about people? Or will I just talk to Him about other stuff? Think about it. Do we all have a responsibility to share the gospel in some form or fashion? The answer to that is yes. We all do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time we've had together. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of James. <clears throat> Let it just penetrate our lives and our hearts and help us to get back to some practical Christianity. Help us to remember that some days we got to endure. Some days we're going to see the miracle. Some days we're going to hear the word. Some days there's going to be silence. And we're going to have to endure when there's silence. Some days there's going to be trouble and there's going to be adversity. We want to make sure that our strength is strong enough to live in the midst of adversity. We want to take you as our example. And like David, Lord, we say just go into the depths of who we are and the recesses of our hearts and mold us and make us into your image. May we not just have a reputation, but may we have character. Character when no one else is around. That we've learned how to live our life in the audience of one. And that we don't look for the praise from men. But we look for your affirmation. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus name. Amen.